0: I have been on dialysis off and on and transplants off and on since I was 12. So that's 34 years. I've even been asked, why do I want to keep going? Why don't you just give up? Why do you try so hard? And I'm like, because this I love life. In an hour of a sunset, there's enough joy to sustain me for my life. Life's beautiful.
1: You just heard from Marina Troxel, my younger sister. And this episode's different. It's long. It's intimate. And I hope that everyone listens to it. So if this episode works for you, if it touches you, if it helps you, please share it with a couple people. And I do mean two. Just find two people in your lives that haven't heard of it and share it. Marina has a bachelor's in vocal performance, a master's in vocal performance. She's a, you know, classically trained operatic voice. And she has a master's in education and a certificate through K-12 in music specialization, which makes her a teacher of music in Idaho. But that's not who Marina is. She's a force of nature. Yesterday, on our family chat, Marina posted that she's home from the hospital and everything went well. And that's good news. But in fact, that was 100% news. Because none of us knew that. None of us knew that she'd gone to the hospital for major surgery. I
0: guess I need to say that I, I'm just kind of doing what I always do. And I need to preface, too, that i on the tails of any major thing that you're surviving or dealing with it's going to get you to what some people might call crisis or the bottom or at your most needy or anyway it's kind of raw i it takes me a lot to get there because i have a threshold much much higher than most people because i'm very used to this my normal includes surgeries on a regular basis And I usually drive myself and I go in and I spend half a day in the hospital and then I come home and I go to work. You know, like it's not, Oh my God, in my life, it's just normal. But when it's more intense and more difficult and there's more fear involved or worry about the outcome, that kind of thing, and you're more exhausted, it's more emotional and it's harder. I don't seek out regular reinforcement for meaning my day-to-day like I just spoke about where it's normal to have to deal with surgeries and catheters and infections and maybe we'll get into that but that's my regular life being a dialysis patient so I don't go around going oh poor me I need to talk to you I need support because that's I'm fine like literally I'm fine and people say I'm fine when they're not and I know that but I really I don't ask for help until I need it and I didn't feel that I needed it, and I just wanted to I let everybody know that it was fine, and I got through it, and it was went great. If I had needed more support at that point, I would have asked for it. You know, I would have talked to mom probably on a separate conversation from our group chat,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and we would have figured it out. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I was just really wanting to celebrate, check another box for Marina going in and handling her stuff, and getting it taken care of, and it was fine, and trying to get back to homeostasis, gonna get there. And that's me interacting with the family, I guess, the way that I do, taking all that into consideration. And then meanwhile, you know, I've I've been having to cancel my private lessons that I do on top of my 40-hour work week, because I haven't been feeling well, because I've had an underlying fungal infection for about five months, possibly longer which has given me a lot of side effects and has been extremely difficult. So I'm at the, that's getting better. I'm on a medication and I'm on the tail end of that, but I don't talk about that. You know, I don't go out in the world and go, Hey, look at my fungal infection, you know, because there's some embarrassment and there's some, I want privacy about the things that I'm not proud of. And yeah, I do do try to hide what I'm not proud of, just like everybody. Perceptions really hits home for me because I add to, it's not even the, the first category of importance is not the world's perception of me. It's my perception of myself. That's where the pain comes because I have to be okay with that. I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm not good enough, according to Marina, because I have expectations in this world of what's right and what's good and what's normal and what I want. Like you said, what makes you happy, right, and does it make me happy that my house is a mess and my it's really hard to pay the bills anyway, even though I'm working forty plus hours and struggling as a single mom and I've been doing that for a really long time no, I don't want it to be that way, you know I want to be able to completely get my life in order, but I've had to surrender because every time I try to do that my body lets me down and says nope you have to prioritize and focus on the things that are gonna make you well you know put on the oxygen mask for yourself so you can take care of your kid it's kind of like that I have to there's not a choice you know so I do what I have to do you know I work all day so I can pay the bills I get home I teach for a couple hours to one to two hours and then I, I dialyze and I crash and I'm so tired, I cry. It's really hard, you know? But it is what it is. And I'm not going to whine about it. That's the path I have for some reason, you know? It's mine. It doesn't belong to anybody else. I've even been asked, why do I want to keep going? And that's a really interesting perception that someone has on my life why don't you just give up why do you try so hard and I'm like because this I love life in an hour of a sunset there's enough joy to sustain me for my life life's beautiful there's so much good and amazingness and glory you know in people and interaction like you're saying and children and our planet I mean ah it's endless, you know, so I, I do. I take great joy and appreciation in everything around me that sustains me greatly. And I choose to do something that helps people, you know, teaching music and making sure there's music in people's lives is it's so important. Like, I, I can't imagine doing anything else or not, that not being part of my life.
1: Why is music important in your life? And, and when do you remember your first having music be important?
0: it's funny. I feel like it's a little bit of like a responsibility almost because I was gifted. It always came easy to me singing. And I don't take that lightly. I feel like if you're given a a special gift, especially when you see people struggle with how it's not easy for some people. And then I feel like, oh, that's a weight. You know, that's like, that means I have to take that gift and use it for good. It sounds like Spider-Man. <laughs> I want to help people have a good experience of it. I don't want negativity around anything, especially learning. And kids are so sensitive. They need to be supported and encouraged at every step, never knocked down. And when I, I meet adults that say, oh, I, I just can't sing. And I, I never would. I let other people do that. I'm always told I can't sing. But, you know, nine times out of 10, you hear those people after they've said that. And they they do have a voice. They have a gift. But they've been knocked down and told that they don't. And so it's a self-perception that stops them. And so I feel like, oh, it's such a great opportunity for me who somebody trusts because of my degrees or my experience or the voice that I have. Or a combination of those, th- those things. They trust me to tell them the truth. And lift. I can lift them up. So it's an opportunity to say, hey, that's not true. And singing connects us to our emotions more than any other instrument. It is the thing that we have always expressed our emotions with. From the time we're born. Our voice. Our voice. And so... Even without trying, our voice expresses our deepest feelings. You know, pain, ah, sadness, it just comes out. Immediately your voice cracks and changes. You can't control it. Joy, laughter, everything, right? And so when somebody's told, no, you're wrong, don't express with that, that's like against our human nature. And that's really wrong to me, you know? I want to help set people free of that. They should have freedom to express the way they're given naturally the ability to express and then take that to the level of music. That's like, not only do they get to express their own stuff, but we have this plethora of amazing music out there that people have created because of their emotional experience and we get to connect with that. So then we're connecting and finding other people's expression and resonating with that. And then we're connecting with other people through the same shared emotions that we all have as humans. That's amazing. And if I can be part of that and I can help people get to that place, oh, what an honor, what a gift that is. That's why I teach.
1: I'm a... I'm failing as a podcast host. Just a second, okay?
2: No, you're
0: not. <laughs> you're connecting emotionally. It's just how life I is.
1: <laughs> I'm overwhelmed by how amazing you are.
0: Oh, I love you. Thank you. I feel the same way about you. And I lack the words to tell you all the time. But I think it all the time how amazing you are. I'm glad we can connect in some way.
1: Um, man, when, when crying, it is so hard to continue talking. I, I did a whole um, episode with Michael Lopp, who I do a podcast with, called The Important Thing, called Flick Lempt. And I... Did you hear that one? Oh, yeah. In, uh, it's a great word. Yeah. I know that word. But that and much, I don't yeah. know if we're using it correctly. <clears throat> um, we have some uh, Judaism in <laughs> our past and Yiddish in our past, but in reality, I, I don't speak Yiddish. Yeah. In any case, he he did a talk and in the middle of it, it was about his 50th birthday and in the middle of it, he's talking about his kids and his his wife and what it meant to them. And you could see that that choke in his throat and he was able to breathe through it and change and go through it. and I was like, how do you do that? <laughs> I want to know how to do that. Right. Marina while you're talking about your, the way you think about your life, just everything you just said, which I'm not going to add at all. I'm just going to throw it in because it's perfect. I just am overwhelmed with this feeling of admiration for you and love for you and the way you look at life. Mm. That is, it well, just didn't allow me to continue doing what I was doing. So which was interviewing you.
0: I feel honored. Thank you.
1: Um, just really, really beautiful about voice. I love this idea that You know, that core, even prior to language, we use our voice to express ourselves in those ways. And I hadn't, I haven't thought about that. And I thought, I think a lot about conversation. Right. Okay. I've got a few things. First off, I love this idea of homeostasis. I mean, this this idea that your life is the barrier of things are okay is so different than my life. Right. Right. If I go to the hospital, (laughs) that's what's going on in my life. Yeah. But, you know, of course we all settle to a norm. And your norm is hospitals regularly. Let's just give a baseline for everybody that doesn't know a bit about what your health situation is. You said dialysis, which means a kidney failure. You do home dialysis, which is hemodialysis. You have a system that filters your blood. You do this every other day?
0: It's about five hours. The machine's next to my bed. I have been on dialysis off and on and transplants off and on since I was 12. So that's 34 years. And that's a long time. And in thirty five in case y'all didn't know.
1: <laughs> really?
0: But during that time, uh, you know, things have changed a little bit in the technology world. Not a lot, just a tiny bit. It's, first of all, it's very hard for me to um, accept another kidney because I've rejected three. That means my body has built up immunity, basically, to most of the world.
1: Your three kidneys are our father, Peter who's mm-hmm. no longer with us, you had his kidney for how long before your body rejected? It?
0: Like a couple years when I was 12, 13.
1: And then when our sister Adriana, who's the guest of the first episode of this podcast series, when she was 18, she decided yeah. to donate a kidney to you. And how long yeah. was that kidney around?
0: It was actually not. I was 18.
1: Oh, that's um, what it was. Yeah. She was, she older. was 23. In
0: she had just graduated college. Yeah. We were waiting for her to finish college. And um, I had that one total twelve years before going on dialysis again. I went to college and had two kids during that time. So undergrad and grad school and then had two kids.
1: When you get a kidney, of course, you function like everybody else except for with a lot of drugs. Right. But you're able to pee and you're able to live your life and not have to filter your blood or or pull poisons out of your body all the time. You just let your kidneys do it or Peter's kidney or Adriana's kidney.
0: Right, exactly.
1: And then later you had a cadaver kidney from Florida, we think, or Georgia.
0: Florida, yep. Yeah. And I had that for six years. And that was from 2006 to 2012, during which time I moved from Georgia to Idaho. And then went back on dialysis in 2012. Right before that is when I went back to school again for that second master's and my certification. And I finished the certification and most of the master's and then... I got sick and during the last class and need to, need to go finish.
1: So when you have kidneys, you, you get to go to school.
0: <laughs> yeah, I better myself as much as possible. Right.
1: So anytime that you don't have kidneys, you've got to do dialysis. And there's two forms of dialysis. Hospitals, it's hemodialysis. They filter the blood directly. These are disposable filter cartridges, things that pull the toxins out. They're like mechanical kidneys. When you were a kid at like 12, we did home dialysis you did home dialysis for a long time. The whole family kind of participated, and you were doing um, peritoneal dialysis, which is a liquid inside the abdominal cavity that you'd put in every peritoneal night and cavity. pull back out. What's that?
0: Sorry, peritoneal cavity. Actually, thank you. Which is it's technically in the abdomen. You're right, but just to be clear, yeah.
1: <laughs> That's the other thing about you is that you have mostly like a medical degree in this yeah. stuff. You really know it well. Yeah.
0: I was talking to my friend yesterday who had surgery, and she was like, "Oh yeah, I'm on this drug that." is for something, something. And I was like, no, actually, that's not for that. That's an antibiotic. And she's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, I knew which drug she was taking, and I knew what they were for. Like, I'm a nurse or something.
1: At this point, I asked Marina to kind of describe a bit about how modifications to her body actually work. And she did so. And it might be hard for some people. If you're concerned about hearing that, just skip ahead about seven minutes to when I asked her about empathy for others.
0: Yeah, I would never... I, like most people who get a surgery to enlarge in a vein and an artery to use a needle, as you see in most dialysis uh, in centers, what they call it, clinics, I was never able to do that. I was too small and I've never had big enough veins. And so that wasn't an option for me. Um, they have another type of um, access is what you call it when you get access for the, from the dialysis machine to your blood. Um, is to insert a plastic tube. Um, It's called a graft. And so I used grafts when I was younger for hemo. And they would get infected and had problems with that, or they would clot. I never did real well with with them. They lasted a little while when I was young. But then the last couple of times when I was an adult, they didn't work. So we had to give up on that and go to the third possibility, which is called a tunneled dialysis catheter. Subclavian is where they normally... Have them, which is as it sounds under your clavicle. Um, And it goes into the superior vena cava, which is the upper brachii of the heart, and basically directly to your blood flow. And you need one line inserts, but then it draws and goes in for um, venous and arterial. So arterial pulls out, venous goes in. So there's actually two lines that come off. And I screw those directly onto tubing that comes off that, um, as you called it. uh,
1: Hemodialysis cartridge thing.
0: Yeah, it's the hemodialysis tubing that goes with the kidney, the little fake kidney that you were talking about. And so it's come in a package. I get lots of boxes delivered to my house. And then there's a dialysis cleaning fluid that I hang IV tower above it. And it goes through a warmer, through the machine, and into
1: me. And this helps it not clot and such?
0: Uh, Just make, yeah, well, no. (laughs) I put declotting liquid. I shoot that into the bloodstream through the, through the catheter uh, tubing.
1: So, so of course, (laughs) one of the really great qualities of our body is we have the skin covering that basically stops, protects us from the outside world. And anytime you get a cut, you know, you're supposed to use Neosporin and all that, because the whole point is that you can get infected. There's things out in the world that want to get into your body and infect you. And so when you're in a situation like you, where you've got tubes coming out of your body and you're putting, pulling blood out of your body and putting blood back in your body all the time, all of that is really dangerous in the sense that you've got to be very careful about infection. And that's your kind of thing you deal with every day. My nemesis. What's that? Your nemesis. (laughs) Infection. Let's talk real quickly about what you did on surgery the other day. You went under, right? You were put under.
0: Yeah. Okay. So normally, (laughs) normally, there's that word again.
1: For you, normally.
0: My normal is that for about three years, I've had my only access, there's that word again, has been a femoral insertion, dialysis catheter.
1: In the leg, right?
0: Yeah. So because in your groin, right at the where the crease of the leg is, right? And the point that I access it or I screw my machine on where the tubing comes out of my leg is actually they take the tubing and they tunnel it under my skin. And so it can adhere potentially Mm. and kind of stay more. It's stitched in and then it has, you know, tape and stuff over it. Then the above the groin part is actually going up towards the anterior vandicata or underneath, I think. It's either superior or anterior. Anyway, it's going up towards that heart area we were talking about before.
1: Mm -hmm. You're talking about the tube itself running inside your veins or arteries? Okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's where the access.
1: So you've got like a structure in place that goes closer a, to the heart. So there's more it's flow. Like a,
0: it's like a two and a half foot or three foot. Like it's a really long. Yeah. So it goes from my heart all the way down to my mid thigh. And that does get, you know, I get infections and it's not because of being dirty. You know, it's all very clean. I use masks and gloves and alcohol and it's all very clean. But like you said, it's very uh, it's everywhere there's unfortunately there's bugs all around us and on us all the time right that's just the way the world is uh, staph grows everywhere it just lives on everything mm-hmm. uh, yeast lives on everything there's a lot of stuff that living in everywhere so it's almost impossible to keep that from happening yeah so especially when it's away from the chest area they prefer your access to be In that subclavian area.
1: In your clavicle area.
0: I had so many of those from the time I was 12 until now, over the years, that mine narrowed and blocked up with calcification, scarring. Inside the veins. And I have not been able to use those for those three years or two years. And so a couple years ago, one of my radiology doctors, the ones that put the catheters in my leg, said at some point we're going to have to try to break that open my brachiocephalic artery was blocked on both sides.
1: This is in your neck area or your clavicle area. Mm
0: -hmm. And so that's a whole, that's created a bunch of other complications too. Swelling of the face, um, extra veins growing on my chest and arms. Not pretty, but it's, you know, I've been able to stay alive because I've had this access. So whatever you do what you have to do anyway. So he said, Let's do this. You've had this fungal infection this whole blood, this whole past year off and on. We've got to get that one out of your leg and groin area because that's just too difficult. Apparently, it's just way more prone to infection when it's mm-hmm. in that lower region. And they all know that. And so they want to avoid it as much as possible. So he said, we're going to go in from your groin on the other side and do an angioplasty where they travel up through the vein and through the all those through your entire work, body to do. get up to
1: the calcified area around yeah. your neck wow and
0: then they use a needle to over and over and over again to break through that calcification
1: what percentage chance did they give this surgery
0: 50% and it, I woke up and it had worked and they said it was easier than we thought it was going to be we had no extra bleeding we had no problems we didn't have to put in a stint apparently I have a narrowed aorta order from scarring too and they said we didn't have to put a stint everything's good and we installed the new catheter in your subplagion area. So I came home with, I still have the other one in my leg. And I'm in, in two weeks after successful dialyzing with the new one, I will get that leg one pulled. And then hopefully new chapter on this one up here, not have infection. And get back to my, what we call homeostasis or my normal, right? Yeah. For, for a while.
1: When you hear someone tell you that they're having a hard time because they have to go get, I don't know, uh, orthodontic surgery or something, mm-hmm. something simple, I mean, it can compared to what you go through, do you, are you able to muster empathy for them or do you go, uh, people?
0: Oh, no, I totally do because I feel like I really get probably more than anybody or more than most. That, that that spectrum of tolerance and pain is, is real based on your experience for every single person. You know, their orthodontic surgery may be the hardest thing they've ever gone through. So for them, that maybe it's a negative number up to 100. You know, they're at 100 for their extreme fear, or pain. Um, how am I going to do this? How am I going to take care of my kids? I've never gone under before, you know, whatever they're going through, if they've not experienced it before, that's real for them. And that's just as hard as what I did yesterday on the spectrum of experience and emotional, you know, what's real for people. So no, I don't have any man up, you know, no, I, you know, I think we, we all have what we have and we all have our experiences and we're all allowed to experience them. And we need support for that.
1: I knew that you'd answer it that way. (laughs) And at the same time, you also know that people are capable of handling things. Yeah. Really big. Right. Do you think your ability to handle this stuff in a way that's the way you handle it is grown over time? Or do you think anybody in your situation would handle it? Is there something unique about you?
0: No, I think it's. It's like life skills, you know. My particular set of life skills is specific to this thing, right? I didn't go train to be a Navy SEAL, but could I do that right now if you put me into that situation? No, but if I were a different person and I trained to be a Navy SEAL, I would be comfortable in that situation. Yeah, it's just what I've developed over time. And uh, do I, would I expect somebody to just be plopped into my life and be able to do it? No, not at all. Because yeah, it's like, you, yeah, you grow with it. And you, the other thing too, is I've, I've been doing it for so long. It's, it's, it's almost all I've ever known. Like I have memories of us playing together when we were kids, pre-sick, right? Where it was Eden, you know, there was just, I don't, I have like hardly any bad memories, maybe too many dishes we had to wash at some point, you know, but like even doing chores, I remember was joyful. We would laugh at the sink, you know, and we would laugh sweeping the stairs or whatever. Like we had a great childhood experience thanks to our parents, you know, and and then childhood was over at 12. That was it. I've got a couple more, you know, joyful experiences, but that was life-changing. I had to grow up fast, you know, and it was, it definitely set me apart. And I, that's hard to explain. I don't think that makes me I don't think there aren't I think there are other people who have probably had that for maybe similar or mm-hmm. different reason.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, abuse or death in the family or things like that that will make people have to grow up earlier. But I'm grateful because I have the support system that I have and the family that I have and I do think, oh my goodness, I, I couldn't be in, I couldn't be as healthy as I am or as okay as I am mentally and emotionally. If I were in a different country, potentially, you know, a different situation, a different family. It, it's like all the stars were aligned or the planets were aligned in such a way that I had enough of a support system to be able to do what I did to be able to get an education and have a business and now, you know, get a, get a job. And like, a lot of people don't have that. I am privileged despite all this. And that's a weird thing to say because I know a lot of people look at my life and go, Oh my gosh, that's horrible. I would never, that's, you know, why does Maureen have to deal with that? And yes, there is that, you know, but there's good stuff too. Do you get depressed? No. I really don't. I'm so grateful that I have my children and my work and people that love me. That's amazing. It's amazing to have people love me. And that I love people, you know, like. That's so that's so life sustaining. And music. And music, yeah.
1: Yeah. I feel in talking with you that, you know, my concerns about my mood or like, do I want to do this or that is so petty compared to how you are able to be positive and engaged and helping people and working hard and dealing with health. Yeah. There's a trick that I try to use sometimes when I feel a little bit overwhelmed. Like, well, you know, I, I know where I'm sleeping tonight. I I'm going to eat
2: mm-hmm.
1: like there's this core stuff that I, I never think about it. I don't worry about it. Talk about privilege. Tell me about anesthesia. Um, I've only been under a couple of times and I, it's very hard to form memories as you wake and before you go to, before you're taken out, it's not like sleep. Describe what it's like for you. You've done it so much.
0: It's funny because most of the time when I get a, a dialysis, um, catheter exchange it's sedated but not, not asleep all the way so this was unusual um in my normal surgery situation it's not usually a general anesthesia so they had to do general because they were doing so much but i mean i've had a lot of those too it's just not recently okay so my experience with anesthesia when i'm actually going under <laughs> it's funny that the word grateful keeps coming up Because I actually feel grateful. It sounds a little bit morbid or like I have a death wish or something. It's not that at all. Or I sound like a drug addict a little bit. I don't know how to, maybe you'll be able to put words to it better. But when I'm receiving the gas, the mask is on, you know. There is this absolute sense of relief because I can let go. And I trust the doctors or I wouldn't have signed saying, do this. So when I was back in pre-op and I signed that, I already went through all that. Like, is it going to be okay? Questioning the doctors about all the different things that can go wrong. Making sure that they're confident. We did that. You know, we had a conversation several times. I made my decision that this was worth doing. And I let go of it. I signed the paper, I moved into the, we went into the room. So I was already past that. I didn't have fear. I was ready. I was committed to do it, right? And so then when they give you the anesthesia, for me, it's it literally seconds. But during those seconds, I can completely just let go of everything. And maybe it's only going to be a couple hours where I'm under, but I don't have to think about anything or worry about anything or try or hurt. And there's a lot of comfort in that for me. And like I said, I want to live and I want to try. And if I have to hurt and have pain every day for that, it's worth it. And yeah, I want to be really clear about that because I don't want people to think, oh, a dialysis patient just wants to die. Yes, some people are that way, but I am not like that. I yeah. feel like there's more joy in life than pain.
1: When you go to sleep at night, does it feel similar to that, that you can let go? I mean, I, no. how, how is it
2: different?
0: <laughs> I don't sleep super well. I wake up a lot. I have to take muscle relaxants to even fall asleep. I mean, you know, if I had a therapist, they'd probably say, you're overwhelmed all the time. Because your life is so hard, you operate in, this is what I've you know, self-diagnosed, you operate in survival mode constantly. So if anyone's ever been in survival mode, like when you had the fires, yeah, it's a different existence. You're thinking about food and water and shelter. Are the bills paid? Are the kids okay? Does my car work? Do I have to get to work? Can I make it through the day at work? Like these are every single day is what I'm thinking about Mm. all the time. I don't get to really relax that much. You know, I worry about stuff. That's why I have to take joy in the little things, you know, laughing with my kid or enjoying the sunset or playing in the snow with the dogs or looking at a beautiful tree or singing, whatever it is. Because there's so much of just daily life maintenance struggle for me. And that makes it hard for me to go to sleep Mm. because my mind is going, you know, and I have a hard time just relaxing.
2: Yeah. Because
0: I got to get up really soon and do it again. And yeah, I put that on myself a little bit because I choose to have a mortgage and a car payment. you know, I'm trying to be normal. (laughs) Normal American that owes money to people that I have to work to pay. Yes, I could simplify it if I got to that point. But I really fight to not get to that point. I don't want to give up. I don't want to give into being a sick person and I'm putting quotes in the air. You know? I, I refuse to do that. I want to be living as much as possible experiencing as much as possible. I really enjoy my house, and I really enjoy my car. That sounds dumb, but, you know, I wanted the thing that if I'm going to work as hard as I'm going to work, I'm going to have a car that I want, and I'm going to own my house and not pay someone else's mortgage, and I'm going to do the darndest that I can, you know. It's hard to put that into words. I sound silly to myself, but
1: no, I mean I th- that all makes sense to me. I I wanna ask you something about performance versus being you. You grew up as a a singer, obviously gifted singer, but also an actor and you're you're amazingly good at uh voices, you're a really good actor. And maybe that's just how we were raised as being raised up in a theater company. But you're quite good as a performer. Thank you. And of course, you know, operatic voice means that you've performed a lot. When do you know you're performing for people versus being um, true or honest to yourself, or is there a difference between you and the performance of you?
0: A really good question. I can't wait to ask you the same one in private. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think, you know, when you're in a role, those boundaries are very clear, you know, a stage role. So, I mean, that's a whole nother, that seems more clear and defined because you're given an expectation, you have an idea of what that character is. And that character has limits that don't cross into your own and your own don't cross into it.
1: Yeah, that's easy. And then
0: you just (laughs) develop that to the extent that you can within those confined boundaries, which is fun. My character trait that I made a decision about to clearly define from the time I was young, I guess, is to just be authentic to who I am. So if I'm speaking, it is going to be my authentic truth. And I better be careful not to just speak for the sake of speaking. Hold every thought captive, as actually the Bible says, because it's really easy to keep talking and convince people of stuff, especially if you have a power of confidence. Confidence is a weird thing. Like I'm in a sales job now and I've, I didn't even realize how powerful that is. But people will believe you if you're confident. And that's a tool that I've always had my whole life, which I know has worked to my benefit as a teacher, as a performer, as a student, as a singer, as a person. Again, you have to use the power for good. It's like, if if you're going to be confident, speak truth. Because people will believe you. And it's a slippery slope. You don't want to become a liar. And then you're convincing people of things that aren't true. If you're trying to convince people of things that aren't true, why are you doing that? Is that to get their perception of you to be better? Why are you doing that? Do you not have a good perception of yourself and you need their help to do that? I mean, there's all that,
2: right?
0: So I need to just be really clear about what is true for myself. What is true for myself is hard for me because it's ugly sometimes and I'm not proud of it. I don't want to be ugly. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be skinny. I don't want to be incapable of taking care of my house that I love. It's, you know, all these things. It's very hard to admit that. So sometimes I don't let people come over because I don't want my house to be dirty when people come over. I want to clean it first. You know, we all feel that way. Sure. And so you hide what you're not proud of. But I didn't even used to tell people that that was going on. Mm-hmm. Because, so that was kind of like lying, right? It was like, I'm fine. It's all fine. Well, in the last couple of years, I've realized that when you're not fine and people care about you, there's some leeway there. You can open up a little bit. And you can, if, if they love you, like really love you, then you should trust them. And that was so hard for me, Lyle, to just let people see the ugly, to see the imperfect, you know. I really am a perfectionist. And it's so, like, somebody who doesn't understand that might look at my life and go, no, you're really not. You might think you are, but you're really not. But there's a such thing as a frustrated perfectionist where you're incapable of fulfilling the expectations that you set for yourself. And so you live in a constant state of disappointment and unfulfillment, basically, and fa- a feeling of failure. And so I ride that all the time. Like I have to always tell my, you know, that people talk about the inner voice, <laughs> depressed people hear an inner voice. That's like, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. You know? And my inner voice is, I have to change my inner voice to, it's not your fault. You're not doing this to yourself. You're doing the best you can. You're working as hard as you can. You can ask for help. It's, you know, anyone in your situation would have the same problem. It's okay. It's okay. Forgive yourself. And I have to do that.
1: How do you change your voice to do that?
0: It's really hard. I listen to people that care about me. And I don't listen to the ugly, negative words. There's been some of those in my life. You know, like, it's your fault. You, you hurt people with your illness. You're difficult. You're difficult to live with. It's understandable that they wouldn't love you. I've heard these things. No wonder they're mad at you. You're, it's difficult to be around you. Of course, they're having a hard time.
1: Have you heard this from people that you love? Yes. Yeah.
0: And so it's like, okay, I get that you want to be compassionate toward people and see that, that it's a struggle maybe to be in a relationship with me or whatever. But when it's not something that I created and all I'm doing is fighting for my life, it's not helpful to put me down. Yeah. And tell me that I'm hurting people. Because I'm not trying to hurt people, you know? Yeah. And just trying to survive and love people. And I'm not super good at it. Like, I really try, but I fail at a lot of the keeping it together. You know, on the surface, I'm great at showing that, like you were asking.
2: The That's performance. The
0: performance yeah. part. Because I, I can keep the separation But in some ways, that's no different than a stage thing, right? Because I've defined the boundaries of what's okay to see and what's okay to not see. And when is it so bad that I need to ask for someone to drop off soup, you know, like yesterday? Yes, my my student's mom said, my husband made a big pot of butternut squash soup. Would you like some? Because I was in the hospital and I canceled a lesson. I said, you know what? That's my favorite soup. I would love that. Great, I'll defrost it and bring it over. I'll drop it off at your doorstep tomorrow. How easy was that? Like, it doesn't hurt anyone. You know, she offered. I accepted. I didn't want her to come in because I need a vacuum. You know, it just wasn't a good time to have people over. But she understood that. But I used to just say no to help all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But that just
0: makes it worse.
1: <laughs> it, you know, that's it's also letting someone help you is... Especially in this day and age, I think a real, it allows a person to feel connected in a community way. We, we isolate ourselves into our yeah. little boxes and take care of our own problems all the time. And when you're yeah. able to step out and kind of give somebody some support, there's something very, it's like your impact in, in the emotional space of your family directly extends out and, and gets bigger. And all of a sudden your community is larger. i I remember early on, with kids and babysitting stuff like when, when you're in that time with a young infant it's very especially if you get two of them it's really a hard time and right. i remember asking someone to i said um you know let's let's have them babysit it's not appropriate to ask people for that kind of thing and well should we pay them I'm like no they're a friend of ours they i think it's a i think it's a gift actually to have a little bit of time and so i kind of put it in that perspective i don't know where that idea came from but I saw that for the first time as what it could also be as like taking advantage of people or something I was like, Oh, with the strong confidence and the voice, right. That you could convince someone to do something they didn't want to do. And then maybe they'd be resentful. So there's a border there. You've got to be careful about it. I'm glad that you're able to ask for help or accept help.
0: Yeah. I think accepting is where I'm at. It's harder for me to ask. Yeah. Like uh, Aurora couldn't pick me up and I'm not supposed to drive after surgery. Right. Your youngest daughter. Yeah. And she couldn't. And so I had to, ask for a ride, you know? And I, it's hard. Why is that so hard? It's just to ride home from the hospital. Like that, some people might just like, hear that and go, of course, like if I wasn't me and I wasn't in this life, I have a different perspective. I go, "Oh yeah, of course I would go give someone a ride home from surgery. Yeah. That's what you do. You know, that's nice. And that's a friend, but when you're in a needy position, I don't know why that's so hard.
1: Is it because you're worried they'll say no? Meaning that they reject you? That they don't love you?
0: Um, No. I don't know why it is, actually. I have to think about that. It's like, um, oh, I know why. Because of that inner voice thing. Because I've been told that I affect people negatively with my illness. And I'm trying to avoid that ripple effect. I'm trying to contain it within my box, as you say. Hmm. And... I don't know. I have to get outside it and look at it from a different perspective in order to gauge whether it's appropriate. I don't like that word because it made it sound so negative, like it's inappropriate to watch someone's child. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not inappropriate.
1: Well, it can be, though, right? If you were to
2: to say, hey,
1: drive me to work every single day. To no, right. somebody, you know, right. Well, at some point. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say, though, because the truth is that what you have to deal with compared to what somebody else has to do with, you're dealing with a lot more than they are. So in some ways, if you thought about like neutralizing everybody's uh, free time or something like that and spreading it out, you'd be getting a lot of drives from people. Right. There's a lot of people that are just watching a TV show a lot of the day. Mm-hmm. I think there's about a bit about this idea of failure I, maybe I'm in that right now because yesterday I didn't actually do a whole interview because I was too tired, and uh, I went to talk to Maggie about it, and I said uh you know just tell me tell me it's okay that I don't do this. <laughs> you know reassure me that I'm not being a yeah. this thing's not wrong and it's so there's something about that where you have to ask for help you or when you need help it's like oh, I did something wrong
0: or just that reassurance you know i I have Aurora, but she's she's 18. She's very young. She's doing her kind of her own headspace thing. Her life isn't about supporting me. You know, it's the other way around. Right.
1: As it should, as it should be. Right.
0: Right. As it it should be. And I, that's, you know, I created that dynamic. I wanted a healthy dynamic as much as possible. And by the way, for people listening, I, I have another daughter, but she's away at college. So she's no longer living here. But when I have that, is it okay to ask for help? Is it okay to whatever? Just having somebody that I trust say, you're overthinking this. It's fine. Yeah. What can I do to help you? And I do have friends like that. You know, I'm so grateful. You know, thank God. I have a a community here. That's why I stayed here, even though family's not here, you know. And I don't call on them often because they do have their own lives and their own kids. And I try not to, you know, but I have to get to the point where. I'm in tears and just at the end of it for me to be able to, to go there, to sit down on the couch with my friend and say, I'm really struggling. I can't do this right now. And I need help. Whew, that is so hard. You know? And I don't know why I need to be such a superhero loyal. It's just how I'm built, I guess, you know. But then my friend says, What do you need? Here. Here, have grocery money. I'll bring you food. Let me pick up your whatever. You want me to go get some dog food for you? Like, she's just an endless supply of what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? I don't have to get to that point. But for some reason, I forget that I don't have to get to that point.
1: (laughs) What's your inner voice do when you don't tell it to say it's not your fault? When your inner voice is working, it's not your fault. It's okay to ask for help. You know, you're going through a lot. you've got some compassion for yourself, the inner voice. Is there an inner voice that pops up sometimes that, what does it say when it's not uh, helping you?
0: (laughs) I think you were on the right track when you talked about the failure thing. Oh yeah. Then I just feel like it's all wrong and I've screwed it up and it's beyond fixable and I'll never get out of this. And it's like a wave that's just crashed over everything. And tsunami right and i've i've put it off too long the garage is too messy the floor needs replacing you know i need to get a big garbage can and put it in the driveway so i can get rid of all the stuff in the garage you know whatever like it all just feels really huge and overwhelming and when you're financially not in a place to deal with that stuff you just keep putting it off and you you wait and it's it does it just it builds up and I don't have like a big family here that like has jobs and like takes care of stuff, you know, it's just me and Rora. So she's in school and I don't want to burden her. She's got her own, you know, struggles.
1: Yeah. As you said, you know, she's doing her, you, you want it to be that you're supporting her at some level. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's what kids I want her are to have
0: her social life and her freedom and have a good, childhood.
1: (laughs) It feels like this is kind of a side effect of our modern age. Like at one point, you know, as I think a lot about human evolution and how we got to the stage we're in and our abilities and humans are not actually individuals in the sense that we can't, can't really survive as individuals. I mean, sure we could maybe do it, you know, really excellent, amazing outdoors people could do it on their own. But in reality, we need culture. We need society And the way we succeeded as a species is by having, you know, groups that were, I don't know, a hundred, who knows what the size is, but it's the size, the size where if you can kind of think of all the people and name them all, that's the size. Like everybody knew each other, at Uh least by name.
0: And they have to know Kevin Bacon,
1: right? That's right. Meaning that a lot of our abilities are actually dependent on, our, our capabilities are dependent on a group of people that's pretty large. So when yeah. someone's having a hard time and they're not dealing with the things that they, they that they that are kind of wearing down on them, other people are just aware of it because there's a people around you. You know, right. in our kind of micro family situation, it's not like that at all. If you even have a family of people living with you, it feels like that ebb and flow of success or failure of yourself really could be buffered a lot easier if our groups were a little larger, if our yeah. intimacy was a larger circle.
0: Agreed. And then you have to let people in to your inner
2: life.
0: -hmm. You know what I've learned when I do open up and have these conversations about my life and listen to my friends talk about their lives with their many kids and their troubles? You know, we are all dealing with stuff. Again, there's that lesson that we all need to remember. Despite our privilege, we all have stuff that we're not proud of, that we're struggling with. And like you were asking about when I hear someone else's maybe smaller problems, do does it sound petty or does, I, I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. and do I think, oh, that's, you know, not worthy of my compassion. But what I hear is they have the same level of anxiety and fear and frustration of failure and all that same stuff that I do. And I wouldn't want their problems to trade with mine. I don't want to deal with that sounds dreadful you know like because i'm hearing it through their eye their perspective i get that they are at that same struggle you know we're all struggling to figure it out you know that they, their kids on the spectrum and their their mothers are uh, whatever you know like we all have stuff that's yeah. hard that we're navigating and you're right we do need each other and that's so Sounds terrible to say this, but it really is helpful to get that perspective. It's like, I'm not, I'm not the only human being in the world trying to make it and figure it out, you know, and keep food on the table and gas in the car. Like a lot of people are doing that, taking care of the kids, even though it's hard and finding time for yourself and intimacy with your spouse or whatever it is, you know, it's real. Connecting is important.
1: We could end the episode right there. That's so amazing. But I want to ask you something that's going to be maybe really hard topic to talk about. Cool. Especially since mom listens to this show at some point in the next 20 years, 30 years, our mom won't be there. And you talked about when it really gets bad, you, you will call her. What's your plan?
0: I think about that sometimes. I think it's hard to say plan because I feel like that's, A really strong word, like they say need is a strong word, plan is a strong word. I've tried planning in my life, and it doesn't usually work out the way I planned, Mm -hmm. because for whatever reason, my reality on my path is what it is, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it's usually my body that has a different idea of how things are going to go. I mean, I hate having to say it, but I feel like a lot of what we're talking about is Logistical day to day help doing things. And I don't use Diana, our mother, that much for that because I don't live near her. Mm -hmm. Right. So that kind of is in the category of what we were just discussing community, relying on friends, opening up, asking for help. The uh, other piece that really where mom comes in is the financial piece. Right. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm really need help, she's usually family. Right. Is usually where I ask.
1: You had talked earlier about this idea that you don't want to, I don't know if you use the word give up, but boy, be a sick person, like transition uh-huh. from having a job and having a house and having a life and having to figure out yeah. how to get gas in the car, all those things yeah. to some other state. And I don't know what that other state looks like, really.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Like, what does that look like to you? What What would it be if you were unable to work? Or do you just right. not put that stuff in your mind?
0: No, no. I think I've thought... Worst case scenario, I think that helps drive me to not get there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think we probably all do that to a certain extent. Sure. Like that's problem solving, right? right? Okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? Let's build backwards from there. Right. Let's avoid that. Um, so I think worst case scenario is I end up in a home being taken care of by staff. And that's something we equate to the elderly right? Uh, That doesn't have family to help take care of them, that kind of thing. And I just feel like at 46, where I'm still able to work, I'm a long way from that. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't, I mean, mom talks about her retirement being in conjunction with my life. We've dreamed about that. So that's sort of a plan maybe, is that I, um, we bought this house together in March she helped me um, co-sign and she did the down payment. And so that I could get out of renting because rent kept going up in this area. The big, you know, housing boom happened here. It's still going up. So that's, that was a good step for us. Right. For me. So that she could help me get out of the rental market, first of all, but then also have potentially a nest egg that I'm building. Right. Mm -hmm. Real estate can do that potentially. So then we thought, okay, well, at some point we could sell this house and get a piece of property with a granny flat, an ensuite, you know, so that she has a place she can live when she's no longer able to take care of her house mm-hmm. with Bruce.
1: So you, so the three of you maybe merge together a bit and, and support each other a bit. Yeah,
0: or... Building um, that
1: community thing I was talking yeah, about in some ways.
0: Exactly. Yeah, or... We get a big enough house for you know whatever.
1: The thing um, is, I was talking to Bruce and he doesn't want to move into the snow. That's the that's the that's right. the kicker.
0: <laughs> so we might move out of Idaho. Like right. I don't know, and I want to be closer to family.
2: Yeah.
0: In California, right? So it could be they really like Oregon. So we're thinking maybe Southern Oregon. I don't know. It's these are not plans really per se, but the dreaming is happening. Yeah. You know, and I do have an awareness that. If my graph, my life on a graph is looking like it's on a downward and I'm not getting better as much as I'm getting worse, then yeah, reality, right? I need need to change some things.
1: Well, I mean, being alive does mean you get worse, right? Like you're at 20 your peak and then you just (laughs) decline over time.
0: We're all in that boat, right? At
1: least our bodies,
2: yeah.
0: But I mean, uh, if I get, if detriment begins to happen that it's outside my control just from being on dialysis for so long or whatever it is, or some other thing, you know, heart failure, who knows, like stuff happens. Um, then yeah, then we'll plan. Like, but I will continue to plan for things to get better. You know, curing this infection, check, you know, we got it. Right. Um, getting a new catheter in a better place, check. Like I have great optimism for, the next few months, you know, feeling better, getting back to how I've been over the last, you know, prior to this infection, I was doing really well and working, you know, 50 to 60 hours a week. And You like,
1: got your first full-time job ever or? Yeah. Yeah. Because teaching's always been kind of part-time, right? What's it like to yeah. transition from continually trying to get enough students to pay the bills and also, of course, working yeah. at the schools? Because, of course, you also work yeah. at the different schools. What is it like to transition from that then to having a steady job paycheck, you know, four hour, 40 hours a week kind of thing?
0: <laughs> when you have your own business, as I do still have with my private studio, Troxel Music Studio, I'm, I'm teaching much less and I'm not actively looking for students. People still text me because I have contacts for the school and ask me, you know, for for lesson time. And I've had some regular students for seven years that I still see, but the mentality of having your own business and that drive of always trying to get more and keep it going and the, uh, the appearance of professionalism and all that stuff. I've brought that same kind of mentality into the 40 hour work week. And that's not I mean, it's necessary to be professional and work hard and be driven, but I think I overdo it, kind of. Like, I have this anxiety a little bit that I'm not doing enough or that I need to do more and that I should go, 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 go. I'm a little bit of a workhorse. I'm a, I'm a, I am of don't know why exactly, but I think it's from that, that you have to create the paycheck. Go, 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 go but just me being there is creating the paycheck. And yes, I have to work when I'm there. But it's a different kind of um it's a different kind of mentality. I wish I had another word for it because I do the work, but I don't have to look for the work. It comes to me. So, I need to kind of calm down a little bit. It is different.
1: My friend Al has been a tradition st- 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 back from being an independent designer to working for companies. And his his thing is always about You are always looking for the next thing. You know, when you get off work from your 40 hour day at work, it might be a long day. You might be tired. You might go home and have to do the things you have to do, but you don't have to on the drive home go, okay, wait, how am I? I don't have a, I've got to avoid my contract. You know, in two weeks, I need to book somebody. I need to call that person back. It's not always on. You kind of get to shut down a little bit. Yeah.
0: Right. And I'm still teaching. So I have that, like, do I have a lesson today? Should I make that a different time? Have they paid me? Should I bill? Oh, I have to let them know. I mean, I'm still doing that, but I have to remind myself, you just worked a nine-hour day. Have some dinner. Stop thinking about it. Just take a minute, you know, because I do work hard at the store, and I – it's a long day, you know, and I'll take lunch at work. And so I kind of need to trust it a little bit more, I think, just because, like you said, I've never – had that before and people rely on me and I follow through and I do what the boss asks and you know I'm doing it it's just it's hard for me to relax afterwards and remember that okay you know you did it you're doing fine he wouldn't have hired you if he didn't want you to work there you wouldn't still be there if he didn't like what you were doing calm down
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah we have a term we use a lot in the software industry It's not thinking like you belong. The imposter syndrome.
0: Oh. Yeah, do you get that? Yes. Constantly. And that's that thing of like little stupid things. Am I not keeping my desk neat enough? Do I look busy enough? Is it okay to go get coffee? Did I already take too many bathroom breaks? Are they watching me? Like, am I on camera? (laughs) Sounds like paranoia. I mean, is it okay to listen to this music while I'm... Do they think I'm not paying attention to the phone? This is a constant, you know, what do you call it? Uh, background noise yeah. in my mind.
1: I mean that that hopefully will degrade over time as you know you get more confident. But then you don't want, you know, we've all ran into those colleagues that are not really pulling their Clipid.
2: weight
0: and
1: yeah. you're like, uh, that person. I don't wanna I don't wanna be that person, even if it's easier. I don't want to be that yeah. person.
0: <laughs> right. No, you wanna be a hard worker and you want people to notice. Yeah. Yeah. But see, I'll just kill myself. <laughs> like, cause I'm just stupid like that. I'll overwork myself. I don't ask for help. I don't, you know, like yep. it took every ounce of my courage to go to the, my boss and say, I use the printer constantly and I'm disabled and it hurts for me to walk a lot. Can I please have a printer at my desk? Oh, yeah, no problem. I'll ha- you'll have one by next week. I got a brand new printer out of it. And within two weeks, two other people did too. Interesting. Yeah.
1: And that means that when you print something, you don't have to walk across the room. You're actually saving time.
0: Yeah. And all you have to do is ask. You know, it's not.
1: Right. The worst case, is they say no.
0: Why is it so hard? I don't
1: don't know. (laughs) Why is asking hard?
0: (laughs) And now I have to break down and put a little coffee pot at my desk because I don't want it to go upstairs every time I want to get coffee.
1: And you'll buy that coffee pot yourself? Oh, yeah. Coffee's so good.
0: Right? <laughs> it's a necessary evil.
1: <laughs> so I feel like at one point in our lives, we started fighting about something. <laughs> I think, I attribute it now that I look back at myself as my young arrogance. I decided that science was the best way for us to figure out how to do things. And I really you know, got this, I want to say I was a fundamental, <laughs> fundamentalist atheist, which I love that idea that you're like, can be overly aggressive about something you don't believe, which is really funny. <laughs> Any case, we kind of, you know, you, you became Christian and I disliked you for it. I was, ang- I felt like you disappointed me. And I remember at one point, much later in life, we were having a conversation. You said, you know, Lyle, nobody else in my life talks to me the way you talk to me. And I was like, Whoa, what, what's that? And I, you know, I looked at that and went, yeah, I got to stop treating Marina as my younger sister and treat her as this amazing woman that she is. And Aww. I've tried to work on that. You know, we all fall into our, our places though. It's, it's hard to get away from that. Um, so how are you with God?
0: I guess I'd have to ask God how I'm doing with God. I mean, I think it all plays back into being grateful just grateful for what we have in this world. And, and I believe that was created by a higher power that, that there's design in it and it's beautiful. And so I appreciate it. And
1: are you singing in choir right now? No, no. you going to church.
0: I haven't been to church in a long time because of COVID. Right. I was just attending online, you know, watching, watching video. Um, I'm okay with that. I mean, it is what it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Are some of the people in your life that your friends and support structure and stuff, are they from church?
0: Uh, they don't go to the same church. I do. My friends around here are LDS. So they're Mormon. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really share the same, a lot of this, not all the same beliefs, but a lot of the same beliefs, I guess, are similar. A lot of uh, just family is important and yeah. connecting and, and loving people. And that's what's important to me.
1: What do you think about LDS?
0: just that I respect that they do their thing and I
1: don't,
0: I don't know what they know because I don't go and listen to them. So I just know it's different. And, you know, I just see that how they treat people and my friends that I love and choose to keep in my life are loving and great friends and listeners and they take really good care of their families and they're very caring you know, kind, generous, giving people. Mm -hmm. And I don't care what your religion is or what you look like or, you know, anything really. If if you treat people well and you're loving and and you accept me and love me and you don't judge me, you know, for my stuff that I'm not proud of, then I want you in my life, you know, and I respect you. That's all that matters. Religion is not that important to me.
1: (laughs) Religion is not that important to you?
0: Uh, what your religion
3: is? Yeah. No. I yeah. mean,
0: as far as whether I want to hang out with you or be your friend or love you, no, I don't care. I've always loved you. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter to me who your God is.
1: Yeah. I've always loved you too. Or I mean, isn't. Yeah.
0: You know, like whatever. It's not, it doesn't define us.
1: When you talked earlier about this idea of this kind of like Eden childhood up to 12 when you got sick. Um, I think if mom were to talk about that kind of stuff in her life, she'd talk about color the the the, shape, the color of the experience because she's such yeah. a visual uh, person. Do you think about what do you, does that look like a different kind of life? Like if you were to put it in a film, how would you represent the change that happened there?
0: That's a great question. It's a little bit, you know, let that expression time flies, right? There's this chunk of time from when I got sick at 12 to when we moved to Lompico, that's all a little bit blurry. Mm-hmm. I have these moments of memory at Alba, you building the bed table. You were very present in my memory of helping mm-hmm. and growing up fast. That's that thing that you grew up really fast. Yeah. Because you stepped up and wanted to be supportive and I don't know a little bit, you know, like, I, I mean, I, maybe that was your performance. I don't know. But anyway, (laughs) I do remember you doing that, especially when it was in conjunction with dad's energy. Like Mm. I felt you guys doing it together, but I honestly, I feel like I blocked a lot of stuff out. You know, and I remember good times because I had a boyfriend after I got the transplant.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I had for seven years dated a guy named Danny. A great guy. And, you know, we had, we had good times. He came to that, to the Alba house. And I, I mean, it was fine. And I spent a lot of time at their house and those were, you know, and then I went back on dialysis and I was still with him during that time. So that was all good. You know, I had some good times, even though I was going into the dialysis center and yeah, and surviving
1: there was also a lot of difficulties during that time. There was, you know, over not pulling off enough uh, potassium. At one point you were going into different types of shocks and yeah. the, the process of trying to keep you clean, going into the hospital, blood pressure. blood pressure, always monitoring. A lot of the life that we experienced was about that. Like that was mostly what right. we were doing together. You know, I'd go off to school and then, as a yeah. family, it was like, okay, you know, we got a microwave now. We got a microwave because we need to warm your saline bags before they went into your body. There's like, do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Before that, we now didn't Now that's have a totally
0: microwave. frowned upon. And they're like, no, no, no. Just people listening. Don't do that. Don't do that? Very bad. Yeah. Well, was, why is that bad? No, no. Because now it doesn't heat it, oh, it evenly and it can burn your peritoneum.
1: Uh, uh,
0: but you see, yeah. And so for me... Again, I think we're tying back into the negative talk. You're affecting people negatively. That's bad shit that's in my head because I don't want to hurt you and I didn't want to hurt you. And so then the memory, I block it out. I don't want to think about it. But what
1: was was hurting of that?
0: Because then your life, you just said it was about that.
1: Well, no, I meant our life together, like what we did together. I was doing my own life too. I had a job and friends and hating yeah. middle school. <laughs> I had t- my, No, yeah, yeah. When I think about that period of life, it's all about school and my friends. Okay, good. When I think about you and I, it's about that. And I remember after you had the transplant, all of a sudden like You had friends over sometime. We're all hanging out in the upstairs in my old room upstairs in the attic and we're chatting. And I was like, whoa, this is like what siblings do. Like it felt like different because all of a sudden you had the friends coming over and because you were out in the world, met Danny and all that. Yeah. I told a story for a long time that I saved your life at one point during one of your seizures. And in retrospect, I think that's something that I kind of told people, but I don't think I actually did anything except for I wasn't freaking out and mom and dad were freaking out. And you were having a full body seizure and I was making sure your airflow was there. But I didn't do anything. I didn't, you know, clear anything from your throat or anything. I just was there as you almost died.
0: Level headed is pretty powerful, though.
1: Sure. It's powerful. It's funny. I'm with adrenaline, totally clear as a cucumber. I've been around you before and you've shown me one of your tubes out of your body and I get nauseous. i <laughs> like almost fall yeah. down.
0: <laughs> so yeah. it's
1: really interesting. Uh...
0: So back to that question, because I think it's important for us.
2: Mm.
0: i have a problem with causing people pain i think part of it is i know it so well i would like to keep you from having it mm. do you remember when you went in when you had your accident
2: mm-hmm.
0: what you were 19
1: 20 my, my motorcycle accident i shattered my leg yeah 19
0: i thought you shattered your pelvis
1: uh yeah um my femur so shattered my hip in like seven places
0: yeah and
1: so reconstructive i remember surgery. very
0: distinctly. Going in, and I was crying, and you were like, "What? I'm fine." And I said, "I think you were pretty out of it." And I said, "I was just—it's me that 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 has the pain. It's me that goes to the hospital, not not you. Like I will take this. It's not okay that it's you."
1: (laughs) I don't remember this well.
0: I don't like other people having to go through it. You know, like I'm equipped for it. Yeah, but it's other people aren't, or something. So Right. right. Anyway. So if our experience that you remember of us, you know, during those difficult years was all about me and all about difficulty, then that sucks. No, no. Because, you know, we've built our relationship on that in part, you know, and I I don't want to have that memory.
1: I think um, I'm in an opposite place. I feel like I let... I think it's really common for siblings, for the younger siblings to look up at the older siblings and pay attention to what they're doing. I pay attention to Adriana, right? She's my older sibling. I take you for granted. And I see that in other kids. I've seen that in my kids, right? This is channel going upwards. And it's fantastic when you see it turn around. When I see Wyatt (laughs) look at River and go, ooh, what were you doing? And they're talking about anime or something. River's like drawing something. And Wyatt's like, this is so cool. I'm like, oh, thank God. (laughs) The circle's collecting. But I think about that with us, I think like, you know, sure, when I'm 13, 14, whatever, and you're starting to be sick and everything about the home life is about you. That's exactly when, you know, the middle school era kid goes, oh, the world is different and bigger and they expand out. So it in some ways made me focus outside of the home. And I was very busy and engaged. And I feel like I partially just ignored you or ignored the problem and didn't really feel or think about it. And that's probably a protective mechanism too, right? Like you could die any day. Um, That's how it felt as a kid, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Or or it didn't even, like, I I don't even think I really thought about it. Um, But, you know, I remember the chores of like emptying the bags and stuff and just dealing with that and kind of being, you know, a teenage annoyed kid. But in no way was that about really you. I was still engaging with you. We were doing performances in theater and, other things that was positive that was fun when we did the (laughs) what was the show we did you didn't even get cast because i got cast guys and dolls oh yeah director decided they couldn't put us across as as lovers because that would be inappropriate
2: right (laughs) Right. so
1: you didn't get to play the role and i played uh, sky masterson the one time that i got a role as a singer that afterwards i went oh i can't do this and that experience led me to go i can't really sing So it happens to everybody. And guess what? What?
0: I can't? You can. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you don't have negative memories associated with, I mean, that you you also have positive, that it balanced, I guess, maybe is a way of saying it.
1: That's the thing. I don't know how much we think about or remember our suffering.
0: Can I be honest with you about something? Yep. Is it okay to do it? You can cut it out at the interview if it's not appropriate one of my negative memories that i have to undo the damage from is actually at one point you got really clear about what you needed to feel good about what was going on with me and what it was is that i apologized to you for being sick wow because it was fucking with your life
1: when or- you when you said that earlier when you said that earlier about loved ones saying that to you, I was like, I bet I've said that to you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It was only one time.
1: W- w- how old was I?
0: Well, we were at Alba and it was.
1: So I was under 18.
0: A, a freshman or a sophomore or something.
1: My uh, freshman year of high school. Oh, long ago.
2: My no, first whatever. day
1: of my freshman year of high school, Joe, Joe Fist had come to yeah. stay at our house because the day of my first day of freshman was the day you and dad went into surgery for the kidney transplant.
0: Wow.
1: And uh, I ended up hanging out in my bedroom, which I then, I think I painted the entire thing. Right. And I didn't go to the first day of high school, but I asked Joseph to drive me up to San Francisco for, to, yeah. to be there when you guys got out of the hospital. I didn't actually end up going to high school. I thought I was going to. Why? I mean, what an arrogant bastard I was to sit to ask you to apologize. I I mean, there's not like that's not you you. were
0: going through some shit. I mean, that's a crazy story that your first day of high school, which is important in its own right for you developmentally, where you're establishing, you know, relationships with your teachers and your friends and what's normal for a freshman. And that sucks going from middle school to high school and figuring that out. You're the youngest at the school. It's terrible. Yeah, it was scary. And then you had all this shit going on at home. It's so
1: It's so interesting because at that time, I felt like I was a full human adult person with all the abilities and skills, right? Yeah. But in reality, I look back, I know what a freshman in high school looks like. They're not on top of things. Right. <laughs> well, thank you for telling me that. And I, I'm very, very, very glad I have you as a sister. And who I am today is in large part by... Because of my experiences with you and I wouldn't trade that for the world.
0: Wow. Thank you. I feel the same way. I feel grateful and amazed by you. We've we have such different lives. Yeah, we have different lives. And different paths and different jobs. And so it's funny because I you know how you said it kinda I knew what you meant and what I was thinking, the language I would use would be. You said it's hard to break out of old habits when you're in relationship with, right? So I think of it as just like the patterns of how we relate to people. I think you and I got stuck in a pattern for a long time. It's like, I would come home in my twenties for a get together, a family get together. And you were just condescending and you yell at me and you told me I was wrong. And I'm like, why do I have this relationship with you? I don't understand. So I mean, it's, I'm glad we're getting through that. And I felt like the younger sister, like wanting to understand you better so that I could relate to you better so that you'd like me more. So we wouldn't have that. And I, it's not like it's all been us not relating, you know, I don't have that feeling. Like I've definitely felt like you've endeavored to relate, you know, to my music and singing. And you've really tried to take voice lessons and connect um, onto this other thing you know this thing that i do for your reasons you know but i have a hard time relating to yours you know and understanding because it's such a another world you know and then i felt kind of guilty about that like how can i make it up to you that i don't understand what you do kind of like
1: nothing to make up to me at all i I gotta remember is that when you did live locally and you had ariana and i had wyatt and we had we had children within a month of each other our first children Um, we, we got together and did the whole, um, aunt, uncle, niece and nephew thing. It was fantastic. I was bummed when you moved away to Michigan to go to grad school. Uh, At the same time, it feels like we didn't do enough.
0: I moved to Georgia at that point. Actually, that was a terrible time in my life. The Georgia thing.
1: Yeah. The people we surround ourselves with it. It's really important.
0: (sighs) And I have to tell you that one of my beating myself over the head things is, it's nothing I could have done about it because it was so expensive to live in Santa Cruz. But wanting to raise my kids in a better, closer to family environment, it's just, it was impossible. Once I moved away and wasn't, we weren't in the military anymore, I couldn't afford to come back. Yeah. And so I had to create a community somewhere like, our, like Adriana, you know, and develop the community where it, I could. And I, it's not even just that I sit around going, oh, I wish I could have raised my kid. It's that literally Aurora and Ariana would say, why didn't we just get to go live back at Alba? Why didn't you just rent the cabin across the street? Why didn't you just move back there? Why couldn't we, have, you know, why didn't we get to get raised the way that you did? All I hear is how amazing it was. And I'm like, our path was just different, and I couldn't control that.
1: Cora just visited us and one of the things she said is, I just remember how magical Alba was. You too? (laughs) It's just, it's generational. It's amazing that your kids too have that feeling about the place that we grew up.
0: So someone bought it? Is that right?
1: No. Bryn lives there. I just visited him right before uh, New Year's. He's living in his, his place and we talked about old times and the property. He's in the big house? No, no. He's at his house.
2: Okay. <laughs> wow.
1: No, I, we talk about buying it. We always talk about that. It's just this constant Is that going to
0: happen? That'd be nice. <laughs> no pressure.
1: You know, one of the magic things about the property, about Alba, that it's really hard to get because it's so, is that the reason why it was magical was because it was somebody else's problem. In the sense that for children, it is a fantastic place to be.
2: Yes.
1: And it is an old yep. hippie commune farm that all, all the problems exist. And everybody that lived there got kind of cheap rent for kind of funky houses. And there's something kind of magical about that for children. For adults, how are we going to eat this place? The plumbing failed. There's no water. You can't drink the water. You know, there's a lot of problems Nightmare. with it and i owned those problems for for 9 years or so with maggie and it was hard to live there
0: right
1: to give everybody else this kind of magical experience yeah. that's what it felt like right yeah yeah wow yeah so if buying it means having it be hard again and so that's that's where i go like well what what is it that produced that environment that allowed all of us and when I say all of us just us and all these other kids these other families to to enjoy it so much and it's something about the structure and I think it has to do with that kind of one driveway mini houses thing that allows kids to run around and do what they want because you know that you know everybody around you really really well and there's a safety in that even if you're not friends with them necessarily
0: they're safe yeah yeah wow that was really good for me to hear. I have this feeling in the pit of my stomach when you talk about it, like, um, it's like excitement, like adrenaline, I guess, because I, there's this hope that we'll somehow reconnect with that feeling or, or create that for our family again, or have another reunion. That's magical there or something. I don't know. And When I was ready to fly the nest at 18, 20, whenever it was that I left, I didn't want to be there anymore. I was, I was fine with it. Goodbye. Like there's enough negative memories at that place. Right. And and mom and dad were buying a house in Lompico and it was very exciting. So I don't, It's not like I dreaded leaving, but when my kids talk about wanting to have that experience and then remembering that experience of like the meadow that you turned into a garden. I remember just when I was a kid, I would just run down to the meadow
1: and then life intervened and someone showed up at the house and I had to stop chatting with my sister. Clearly a deep conversation about not just the stuff that we'd want to share with everybody, but a whole bunch about our, personal experiences together and where we grew up. This Alba property she's talking about is a piece of property that we moved on to Marina and I are about a year and a half apart. And we moved into the property when I was in kindergarten and uh, it's like five, six. And we lived there until I was 18. So she would have been 17 and my parents then bought a house. We'd rented there the whole time. And it's a property with a giant geodesic dome that was built with the idea that we'd solve housing for the world. And it has a lot of history um, connected to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and some really amazing ideas. And a lot of people live there as a, a healing spot. But the property is actually even further back in time for us. And that is that when my mother was pregnant with my older sister, Adriana, my mother lived on the Alba property. And it has a big communal pool, which all the hippies would swim in, nude. And my father lived one valley away in the mountains here in Santa Cruz. There's a lot of steep crevasses, if you will, of creeks. And you can walk up and down or down and up these little crevasses and be in different neighborhoods, if you will. So he lives in this town called Brookdale and right next to and went down and actually crossed a giant fallen log and stepped across the log, walked across the log, to go to the Alba property. And there was a woman that sold eggs. She was known as the Chicken Lady, and he'd get his eggs from there. And the other thing about this woman, the Chicken Lady, was she's Raven Lang, um, a famous midwife, someone who wrote the book on midwifery and brought it back to the United States. And that actually happened on the Alba property. So there happened to be a lot of midwives around there a little bit before the time when I grew up there. In any case, and as my father walked across that log and up onto the pool area, there he met my mother, pregnant, naked, sunbathing. So the Alba property is important to our family. We were very fond of it. And over the years, we'd go back to this property It has five houses plus a and dome and and do reunions there and stuff. And we're friends with the family that owns it. And when I got into a divorce, when I went through a divorce in 2008, 2009, 2009, I moved in back to that same property that I grew up on. And I guess, you know, I was 34, 35, whatever. My kids were the same age I was when I moved in there. Moved in the exact same house that I grew up in. And Maggie and I raised the kids there for nine years, um, renting the entire time, recovering from divorce. We'd both gone through the divorces and making a magical place for everybody. So my sister's children came out and visited and we had reunions there and giant parties. And Maggie and I, um, built a beautiful, uh, grove. We cleaned up a beautiful grove that we had a wedding at. That's where we got married. And it was a lot of work to manage that property And, you know, when people talk about going back to it, Marina has this great story about being a child in the meadow. I want to hear really soon. I think they're talking about going back to a simpler time. I I don't know if it's a place. I think it's a time of life. It's a time of life before we get ill, before we see Our bodies get weak before we have our divorces and heartbreaks and deaths of parents and all the challenges that life brings us. It's a time that we're not thinking about that. I think it's about childhood and safety and community. It's a way of life that we have at a certain time. That's what it is. It's not really that property. I mean, we all have it, right? We have that memory of, but well, hopefully we all have it, that memory of someplace safe. Or where we learned and grow, where we found the most discovery, and where we became who we are. That place. Yeah, I want to go back there. <laughs> it's not really there. It's, it's a win. Thanks for listening. Uh, do I have anything extra to say about Marina? Sometimes Marina will fly out to California to visit, and she needs to clean her blood every other day. Right? She has to. She doesn't have kidneys, which means she doesn't use her bladder, and she you know she doesn't make urine. She doesn't pull her toxins out of her body through the normal way. She has to use a machine. When she travels, the machine and the gear is really big and complex. Lots of bags of gear and stuff, and transporting that is just a little tricky. You check it on the plane. You cannot lose your luggage it's your organ so marina will sometimes fly out for two night stays and she won't bring her gear she'll leave it at the house because she can do it for a couple of days especially if she's careful maybe 3 days that right there says it all about marina i would not leave my house without one of my organs but she does it regularly. Marina, you are absolutely amazing. And I love you. Taking us out is Steve Edmonds on piano, Bruce Elliott on saxophone, and Marina Troxell singing Eight Misbehaving, recorded in 2007 by yours truly.